Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you can achieve all the things you set out to in life, it means that you haven't set the bar high enough. <laughs> it's as simple as that. If you haven't got things that you haven't managed to do, it just means you've not been trying Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 89 with world-renowned British mountaineer Victor Saunders. Victor is a 71-year-old IFMGA mountain guide and has completed each of the seven summits, summited Everest six times, but arguably much more impressive is his list of first ascents and lesser-known summits. In this episode, we talk a little bit about climbing partners, the rules in inverted commas of mountaineering, and quitting your stable job as an architect at 46 to become a mountain guide. It's a little bit of a philosophical one and opens up the floor for some hopefully interesting discussions around the current state of mountaineering. Okay, over to Victor Saunders. So, well, that's a good place to start. (laughs) Who are you? How old are you? What do you do? I'm... Hello, my name's... I'm Victor, Victor Saunders. Uh, I used to be an architect. Um, I, I've, for the last 25 years, I've been a mountain guide. And I uh, used to live in, I used to practice architecture in London. And now I live in France and Chamonix uh, guiding. I guess that at my age, at the age of 70, uh, 71 actually this year, um, I guess my guiding career should be drawing to a close, and I suppose it is, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to stop work, because I love it. And so you're now a full-time guide, that's what you do? I, 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 I guide, I do expeditions and uh, things like that, and uh, I do a bit, of, a bit of skiing and a bit of... Um, but I, I don't do as much um, work in the Alps as I used to do. I've been very lucky... Uh, most guides of my age are having replacement hips and knees and because I became a guide at the age of 46 uh, effectively my joints are only have only had 20 years of attrition and so uh, physically my bones and joints are like a you know somebody who's a little bit younger as far as the guiding skill guiding is very very hard work on the bones you you know and it's harder work on the joints and uh a lot of guides and climbers of my age have, have had hips or knees replaced. A lot. And I, yeah, I think we'll definitely come back to, well, the guiding years as well as hips and knees and why, why it hurts so much. But I'd really like to talk about your childhood and where you grew up and what your childhood was like. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if I can remember that far back. You know, when you get to my age, it seems. You know, I was only just born into the second half of the last century. <laughs> you know, a couple of months earlier, and I'd have been born in the first half of the last century. And that, that's that's going back some time. I uh, I grew up in um, Malaysia uh, for the first ten years of my life, and um, I didn't go to school. Uh, I we meant we were in reg- we were rolled in at school. We I guess we must have turned up for a few days, but my main memory is with my brother uh, playing hooky, just not turning up at school and having our bikes and going into the jungle and uh, living, you know, that kind of life. And um, so my dad had a a quasi, a semi-diplomatic job. And when that disappeared, um, he came back to Britain and we were sent to school in, in Britain. And I found that at the age of 11, Everybody else knew how to read and write, and I didn't. 
You really, you didn't know how to read. No, I, I, I learned to read at the age of eleven, no. because I basically had, I blagged my way through school. I'd kind of memorized texts, uh, and um, so when the reading tests came up, I, I, I knew what the, I knew what was on the page, but I couldn't read. That's incredible. <laughs> so what? Oh, you said he was a diplomat. Well, he wasn't a. I mean, he was actually controller of the royal household for the Sultan of Pahang. Um, so. In, in the 60s, it was still a colonial system, and the British government had put um, these so-called controllers, uh, it's like accountants, in, um, in, in these sort of diplomatic roles. Uh, unfortunately, my father um, was not, he was the wrong person for the job. He, um, he and the Sultan thought, I mean, it was like putting a four-year-old in charge of a sweet factory. He and the Sultan, <laughs> far from controlling the expenditure, they started go, having polo matches and going on world tours. And, you know, my father thought this was the most wonderful thing. And, and that was one reason why they never really paid any attention to whether their children were at school or not. Yeah, I mean, it's the sort of thing that when you're my age and my generation, you know happened and have heard about, but actually to... Well, have experienced it must have had a profound effect on the person that you became. Well, everybody, yeah, you, you could say that, but I have no idea because, you know, I, I have no other childhood to compare it to. That was the childhood I was given and grew up with. And so we turned up at Scotland. I couldn't read. Everybody else could. It was, I was used to a nice warm, you know, environment where you could run around naked in the rain. When the, when the monsoon comes out, you kind of run around. It's, it's like a shower. And uh, in Scotland, it, it was it was horrible. <laughs> if you think it's if you think that the weather's not very good in the Lake District or in North Scotland, <laughs> so well, it's fascinating that you then went into the mountains. But before we get there, how did you, or what were your teenage years like, and and how did you become an architect? Well, my teenage years were spent at school, so you know, struggling to deal with all that sort of stuff, and. Um, trying to come to terms with living in, you know, in Britain. Um, architecture, well, if you're illiterate, the things that you can do, you can draw and you can count. So, you know, that leads to architecture. Um, and, um, and, and I, 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 I don't know, I, I guess I could have done other things, but it just seemed like the natural thing. In the end, um, it's not really, it's not really, why you go into a job that counts is why you stay in the job. That, that's what really matters. So, you know, I became an architect. And then I, after, it took me 20 years to realise that actually my soul isn't in it. I really love architecture and, you know, and I and really enjoy it. And I enjoy elegant problem solving. But it took me nearly 20 years to realise that actually to be a successful architect, you have to be part of the fashion industry, not part of the engineering elegant problem solving industry. The fashion industry didn't appeal. Well, you know, I think I meant to wear a black shirt and little round uh, Corbusier glasses, and, <laughs> and you know, yeah, and you have to have you have to listen to the right kind of music. You've got to be kind of in. You've got to be in with the with the fashion, with the mode of the times, and um, uh, just it completely eluded me. Well, just to skip a few steps, is that not the same for the mountaineering world and guiding culture? Oh, that's, that's, that's a very clever question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, that is, that's, it's a really, it's a brilliant question. It's completely left field. I have no idea how to answer. I haven't given it any thought. And if I was to, if I was trying to answer it, no, I'd probably it would be just absolutely, I'm sure I'd just ramble on. So the answer is, I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we maybe come back to it after we've chatted a bit. But when did you discover the? I guess, the hills, as it were, and climbing. Right, well, it's really part of childhood. Um, when, you, when, when you're a four-year-old, and you, and you, well, you're a three-year-old, you, as, you, as you grow up, you, first of all, you discover the, the house and then the garden, and then one day you open the gate at the bottom of the garden, and, and you've got high eyes as big as saucers, and the, the, the world is completely fresh and new. And climbing has a lot of that about it, especially doing uh, things on site or new routes, and going to the Himalayas and trying to do something that's never been done before and trying to solve these problems. And so it's, it is about problem solving, but it's also about trying to recapture that moment when you were a four-year-old and you opened the gate at the bottom of the garden and there's another world. And that, that's, for me, climbing has got 
It's got so much in it, but that's one of the main things it's got in it. And it still feels like that now? Yeah, yeah. It's still, uh, it's, it's, uh, I think that the difference now is that I, when I open the gate at the bottom of the world, I kind of know there's going to be another world and it's very exciting. Whereas I think as a four-year-old, you open the gate and you have no idea what you're going to see. I guess you just understand the limits of that new world now, whereas before it was a void. Well, yeah. I mean, and so one of the things that, that, that appeals about um, a certain kind of climbing is um, is going to, to going to your limit of competence. Going to your limit of competence. A lot of people have put it in different ways. Mick Fowler says the best routes are the ones that you either just succeed or just fail because they're kind of near your limit. And... Um, and other people have put it in different ways. And I, I, I think about it more in terms of um, when you reach the limit of your competence. You know, when in fact you're becoming incompetent for the first time, that's when you're opening the door into a new world. And as we get older, that limit approaches closer to us. <laughs> yeah. So when you first started... I suppose what I'm really interested in is when you noticed consciously that you were climbing, you know, whether that was walking up Monroe's or whether that was using your hands for the first time. I, 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 uh, my first climbing experience was when I was four years old. I fell out of a tree and broke my collarbone. Sets you up well. <laughs> so, and um, I, I remember having a broken collarbone. And I, in fact, I can still feel the bump in it because, of course, it was never healed properly. So the clavicle has got a little bump on one side. Dates from when I was four years old. So I guess the climbing started very early. And then how did it progress? I um, came down from school uh, and I, my, I, my best friend at school was, uh, when I was 13 was a guy called Nick Hagen. And we happened to be in London um, at the same time. I was doing architecture, he was doing medicine. And... Uh, I, I don't know, somebody must have suggested that rock climbing is a really good thing. And we, so we went out in the most beginner possible fashion. And actually, I, I, know, I think I, I can date it. Uh, I know why. The interest came from reading. I'd read, um, uh, I'd read Herzog's book on Annapurna, and I'd read um, uh, no, uh, Conquistadors of Useless by Lionel Terry. And, um, and, I guess it, and I'd also, I mean, obviously I'd read other adventure books as a, as a child, like um, I'd read Francis Chichester's, you know, the, the, when he goes around the world in Gypsy Moth 4. Gypsy Moth 3 is an aeroplane, but Gypsy Moth 4 is a boat. And the, the one thing that, uh, that I could um, relate to uh, as a schoolboy was, was the climbing bit, because, you know, that was something I could practice. I couldn't go and borrow a boat and sail around, but I could get curtain cord and climb a tree and try to repel. And of course, my first ideas of repelling were completely disastrous. I ended up, you know, the, the curtain cord broke. There were nettles underneath, and I was kind of stinging for a week. But I guess that's where the interest started. Uh, but the the actual climbing, we were, um, you know, we were both students, and um, we went down to the one climbing shop that was in the only climbing shop in London in 1970 uh, was the YHA uh, shop in um, just by Charing Cross Road. Charing Charing Cross Station, and um, so we went there, and we asked. What, it, there was a kind of there, there was there was Tony Wilmot was there, who was later to be a, a really really well known Bristol based climber, an ama amazing climber, but he was working there, and I, I remember opening the door, and he he'd been experimenting. He'd obviously just been to Yosemite, and he was experimenting hanging from the. The, the shop was in the attic, an attic on the top of the white chain, and he was hanging from etrias. But as I went in, I had no idea what etrias were. I saw this gangly youth dangling in bits of rope from the ceiling, and I thought, this is very odd. Um, and I said, well, I want, to, I want to take up climbing. What do I need? And, he, and he said, well, you need one of these, some of those. This. And we walked out with a, you know, walked out with a harness, uh, some, uh, some nuts, a pair of rock shoes. <laughs> Didn't know what to do with them, and so we then uh, we went and frightened ourselves liberally in uh, in Bristol for a while, and then discovered climbing in other places. And it slowly built up like that. But yeah, we started off with um, with really quite risible 
adventures of the lowest kind, but still for us, it was, it, it, it was that, that a new world for us. It was all, even though we were doing the easiest things and doing them very badly and probably dangerously, it was fantastic. It was, this, the learning curve is so steep when you're a beginner, that's when it's the most enjoyable. And as the learning curve flattens off and it becomes less enjoyable, the only way to steepen it, I suppose it's like heroin, you know, you just have to sort of mainline harder and harder. And that's, that's, why, that's what climbing's about. It's this idea of exploration. Is it for, uh, for us as a society, as a population, as a species, or can it be for the individual? And what you're essentially saying is that by, I assume, by ignoring the, the guidebook, you are by definition an explorer because you are discovering something for the first time for you. Yeah. Well, you're you're discouraged definitely for you, but the question of um, of whether you are doing something useful um, to the community as a whole, it, um, it it's it's an old question. It's like you know, is is a poem recited alone in a forest where nobody can hear you still a work of art or not? Uh, there's a lovely there's a lovely uh, passage about this. Um, in, um, in Georges-Louis Borges's book, I think it's fictions, but it might be labyrinths, in which he talks about, um, I can't remember the name of the author, but the author who, who rewrites uh, Don Quixote, Cervantes' Don Quixote, word for word. And the discussion is, is this as valuable <laughs> as Don Quixote uh, by Cervantes, or is it, you know, is it still a work of art? And in a way, that kind of relates back to this, this question that, that, you know, how much... Um, how important as it is when you're going to the Himalayas and doing a, you know, a so-called new route, or if somebody's done half of it before, or, or even if you're, if, if you're um, repeating something. Um, I guess if you're repeating something, you know a lot about it. You've, you've got the beta. You know where the escape points are. You know how people got off the mountain. So that, that makes that that immediately takes away from that. And I guess from a climbing point of view. If you go without reading about something and subtract, you kind of—it's a bit—it's um, a bit crass. You kind of, you're, you know, the information is there if you want, and so going to try a completely new thing where nobody's been before and there is no guidebook and nobody's trying anything—that is much. That's kind of much more pure way of doing it. But in a sense, um, in a sense, internally, it's the same thing whether you whether you ignore the information that's out there or you go to somewhere where there simply is no information. So I don't know. It's a discussion. I, I don't have, to be honest, I don't have strong views about any of these things anymore. Well, that's interesting in and of itself. But just to force you down that path a little bit, I mean, you are, obviously, you're a first ascensionist and that's one of the things that you're known for. But equally, you've climbed the highest mountain on each continent. You know, you've, you've ticked those peaks, as mm. it were. Mm where does the value come in in both i suppose and please can you explain the difference in approach style and reward between climbing the highest mountain on each continent and mm. first ascent new routing in the himalayas yeah the philosopher ludwig wittgenstein once wrote um that a game is defined by the rules by which it's played and climbing, the proof that climbing is only a game is that there's constant accusations of cheating. And, and so w what this means is that, this, what this means to me is that you treat climbing as a set of games, as a set of games with a set of rules. So the set of rules that you have for doing first ascents on site is a very different set of rules for the set of rules you have for bouldering or for doing uh, repeating something big in the Yosemite. They're completely different. It doesn't, doesn't make sense to transfer rules from one game to another game. And so the way I look at it is the, the doing the seven summits is, is, is a particular game of a set of rules. It's a, it's, it's a different thing. It's a different animal to going climbing with your mates uh, in the Himalayas or somewhere to you know, preferably to a valley that's never been seen before. And, and that's all about, you know, the emotional thing of trying to go into somewhere that, that you know nothing about and nothing can be known about because nobody else has been there either. So 
you know, it's another thing to go into somewhere that you know nothing about because like Alf Brin and, and, and George Finch, you haven't bothered to or chosen not to read the literature. That's, that's another thing. But to, um, so that, that's one. So for me, that the, the, the difference is that it's, um, it, it's not that one is more valuable than the other. It's like, you know, tennis and squash. Yeah. And which gave you more? Oh, okay. Uh, very good question. Um, ticking the seven summits is definitely more pleasure because it's more pleasurable, but it's less satisfactory. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's the difference between, you know, piste skiing and, uh, and doing trad climbing, uh, especially in the Alps. Trad climbing is very rarely pleasurable. There's, there, there may be five minutes of pleasure during the day, you know, when the sun comes up and, you know, you've, you've been, or in the Himalayas, when you've been freezing cold all night, the sun comes up, it's absolutely beautiful. The temperature comes just perfect. You have 10 minutes of absolute intense pleasure. And then it's too fucking hot and it's too frightening. And it's, and so basically Himalayan climbing, Alpine climbing, to a lesser extent, is not pleasurable. It's, it's extremely hard work, but it's deeply, deeply, deeply satisfying. Skiing in a resort is extremely pleasurable, but there's almost no satisfaction at the end of the day. So this is the difference. So, um, yeah, I would say that uh, taking off the seven summits is much more pleasurable, but less satisfying. That's a great answer. I'm almost surprised to hear that you consider the seven summits pleasurable. Uh, the kind of the fixed rope snow plodding. I mean, I've never done any of them, so feel free to. Uh, yeah, Everest is, is is a bit hard work, but I mean, it, you know, Carstens is is extremely pleasurable, and uh, whatever people say about Aconcagua, I think it's a wonderful mountain, and it's not it's not hard. You walk up it, and when you get to the top of Aconcagua, you look northwards, and that's two thousand. You know, you can't see it all, but there's two thousand miles of you know of 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 Andean chain going one way and you're looking down towards the South Pole. It's fantastic, actually. It's brilliant. There's, there's, uh, and they're all great. Uh, I, I love Elbrus. I love the whole Russian thing. Um, uh, and I, uh, I've done all the second ones except at K2, which I will probably never do now. Um, and they're, if anything, they're even better because they, they're part of the list, but nobody else is on them. Um, and, yeah, they, they have hard work on them, but they, yeah. I, Tari in um, in Antarctica. It's just a brilliant, brilliant place to be. Um, the nearest, the nearest sea, the nearest place with you know permanent habitation by any kind of animals, is you know fifteen hundred kilometers away. You know you're in a you know you're in a white desert. I didn't know that. I don't know where that peak is. It's it's very close to Vincent, so it's in the Ellsworth Range. Okay. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, I was, it's, we, we, yeah, it's hardly ever, I think when I, when I did that for the first time, um, we were the 14th, 15th, 10 people had done it before and we were, we were a group of four or five. So only 10 people had been on the summit before us. Um, but it was, you know, we, we, we'd, uh, we'd done our homework and unlike, uh, George Finch, we knew we'd read. Oh, no. But we still, you still, still have to solve the problems on the day. And we had, we had um, a, a summit day that was nearly 24 hours long because I was guiding um, nearly 24 hours long and it never, it got down to minus 35 degrees centigrade. But it was still extremely pleasurable. <laughs> In its own way. So, yeah, yeah, I had a, I had a mixture of satisfaction about it. But, I mean, obviously, you have, it doesn't, it's, it's a different thing to um, doing the research you can and then finding yourself on a peak that's not been climbed. And so in, um, in July this year, I, uh, we managed to um, do the first ascent of a relatively easy peak in the Hunza region, 6,200 meters. Um, and, and this time we'd done all the all the research it was possible to do, um, and it still hadn't been climbed, so um, we still had problems to solve. And why other people had it had been tried before by my mate Pete Thompson, and he'd got very near the top and turned back in bad snow conditions. And, 
uh, so we did it. We did a different route to what he'd tried. So we had the information on that, but it was really nice to come back having um, solved the last problem some on that. It's interesting where the last expedition I did with Leo Holding, we put our bags on at the start of this jungle trek. And I, and I remember really vividly looking at him and saying, right, here we go. And he, without hesitation, said, no, no, we're halfway. And it just, I was walking thinking, what? And it clicked fairly quickly. Oh, hang on, you've been planning this for a year. I haven't, I got invited to document it, but yeah. he's been doing this for a long time. And, yeah. and I, you know, I get the point now, but yeah. how much of that part of the process do you enjoy and take pleasure in and how important is it to you? And what is, what is involved in climbing a new route or in the first ascent of a new peak from a desk perspective? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Actually, there's a lot of um, connection with architecture there, which has got a lot of planning and preparation. And then you have the execution. So you have the architects who are really good at the drawings and but are not so good at making sure that things get cut up. And um, there's an analogy there also with um, this, something that um, Wellington wrote about Napoleon. And he said that, you know, Napoleon's plans for battle are really, really precise. Uh, and it's and he compares it to um, a saddle for a horse, you know, a hunting saddle, you know, with the embroidery absolutely perfectly stitched. Uh, and if anything goes wrong, it all goes wrong. Whereas the, the, the Wellington compared his plans to a British hunting saddle, uh, where if you know if something breaks, where well, you 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 add a bit of string and you tighten it up. And so the analogy there is that it yes, it does need a lot of planning to carry out an expedition. But you can make up for less than perfect planning by working really, really hard at the time on the trip, you know, putting a huge amount of effort in. But you can't make up for good, you can't have good planning and make that compensate for bad execution. So at the, at the end of the day, yes, planning is, 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 it's a huge amount of planning and it's kind of similar to architecture. But, um, you still need the people on the ground who have the persistence when the weather gets bad to sort of still hang in there, have the desire to finish uh, and the technical ability to finish and, and come back alive and, and make the right kind of decisions. So um, if you were to, you, you need both, you need the logistical support, but you need even more the, um, the kind of ability to improvise when it all goes to shit. And, 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 and really put the boot in and really work hard. And I suppose a lot of that comes down to partnership and partner selection. How much has that played into your success and life? Well, I, I, I certainly wouldn't count my life as success. It's a series of, um, you know, uh, there's a quote that was once attributed to, um, to Winston Churchill, then to lots and lots and lots of other people. You know, success is defined as staggering from one failure to the next without loss of enthusiasm. Uh, of course, it doesn't come from it, it comes from another, you know, all these bloody quotes attributed to usual people. But the, um, I, 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 I know, anyway, I, that's, I, don't, I don't think that, that any, anything contributes to, yeah, I, just the enthusiasm for it just drives you on, really, I think, yeah. And the enthusiasm for uh, being close to your limits all the time. But obviously you've had a very successful, well, let me rephrase that, a long partnership, close partnership with Mick Fowler. Yeah, I, I've had very few climbing partners, in fact. Um, I mean, I've, I've been, you know, I've been climbing in the Alps since the, you know, 1976, 77, something like that. Um, and I, I can literally say that the, the people I climb with on Himalaya, in the Himalayas on my own trips, not guiding, but on my own trips, I can, it's, I can count them on one hand. You know, there's five or less. Mick is one of them. Andy Parkin, who's here, is another one. Um, Stephen Venables, who uh, is another one who I've been on trips and I would be happy to go with again. Steve Sustad. You know, that's it. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, there's not that many. There's, there's, so in, in my climbing life, as Raphael Jensen, there's, 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 I, there's only those few people who I feel that we have a, a, enough mutual respect that 
you know, when, when, when things go very, very badly wrong, those are the people I want to be with. And, and I hope that they feel the same about me. And so when you go out into, you know, extremely, don't, you know, don't, don't get me wrong, climbing in the Himalayas is very serious, especially, you know, if you're trying to go into new places. There's very, very few people that, um, that you, that you should be really, really comfortable with, you know, people who you, who know that when you break your leg, they will help you down and, and, and you will do the same for them. Yeah. And is it just that? Is it just a survival tactic going with people you trust? Or is there an element of, you know, I imagine you go on and, and do those things and, and undertake those experiences because you enjoy them and they add to your sense of purpose and being. Mm. Surely there's an element of, I like hanging out with this person. They're my friend. Yes and no. Um, so the, the most important thing, the most single most important thing in a climbing partner is respect for them as a person, of course, but also as a climber and, um, and morally that, you know, you, you completely trust them. That's the most important thing. Liking them is a little bit <laughs> less important. You can quite happily have a long climbing partnership with somebody you don't particularly like if you respect them, you know, and they respect you. Because you'll never, if you really respect somebody, there's always going to be a little part of your heart that's, you know, there is going to be a little part of your heart that's kind of open to them, always. And so you're never going to be mean or horrible or sarcastic to them because, you know, well, you might be because you, you know, but basically you're not. Uh, and you, 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 if you really respect somebody, you don't need to worry about saying something you might regret because you won't, because you respect them. You, you know, the, the, the people you need to worry about are being disrespectful to are the people you don't really respect. <laughs> God, fascinating. And not what I expected at all. So you and Mick are quite different characters, right? Yeah, I, I love Mick, but I, we don't really hang around. I mean, we've did, you know, we're friends, but we've got very, very different. But I, I there's nobody... There's, well, there's the other, there's people like, you know, the other Parkinson's world, but basically I, I, I think there's probably nobody in the world I'd rather be on a mountain with at this time than one of those, and Mick is one of them. Yeah, and just to jump backwards ever so slightly and... It's, it's, not, it's not just respect, though. It's, 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 it's somebody who you... First of all, it's somebody you completely respect in, all, you know, in, in their personality, but also somebody who you respect the mountaineering decisions on. You're, you're not going to go somebody with somebody who you think is a loose cannon. You're not going to do that because it'll cost your life. And um, so you, you have, so that's also extremely important. And then third, write down, they're, they're a friend who you hang out with. And it's not necessarily the case, you know. I, Steve Sustad I used to hang out with when we lived in London. We used to sort of see each other all the time. I'm very, I didn't really hang out an awful lot with Mick. I've got a lot of time for me. I think he's the most wonderful person, but we live, we lead such completely different lives that we're kind of, you know, we're very friendly, but we're only friends on expeditions. That's when we're together all the time. But I think that's something in and of itself, isn't it? That those expeditions and those experiences, it's not about time served together in the literal sense of how long have you spent together. It's, it's the depth of that experience that builds the relationship, isn't it? That's really true. Yeah. That's really well. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've never met Mick. I've only just met you properly. And, but I can tell you're different characters. And I imagine the depth of that shared experience is profound. Yeah, well, you'll get to meet him because he's here. Is he? Yeah, he'll be, yeah, he'll be here at uh, Hugo's film. I'll go through this podcast and write down all the questions and ask him the same one and the same ones. We'll see what he says. <laughs> um, I don't know, just to jump back, and it's a slightly heavy question. You said, I've not done K2, it's the one I haven't done. And I probably never will now. And it was kind of a throwaway comment. How does that feel? Um, it's fine. It's fine. It's a, you can't... Um, I, if, you, if you can tick all the boxes, if you, can, if you can achieve all the things you set out to in life, it means that you haven't set the bar high enough. <laughs> it's as simple as that. If you haven't got things that you haven't managed to do, it just means you've not been trying. Yeah. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So what do you want to do? Well, the only reason I wanted to finish off K2 is because then I uh, will have... I'm not a list person generally, but this is one list I've nearly finished. And if I do K2... If I should ever do K2, which I probably won't, uh, I will be able to put myself on the list of the people who've done the second highest summit of every continent. That's all, that's all it is. It's, 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 a, it's like doing Monroe's. It's a, it's a bit of fluff. It's not, it's not important to life. It's not, but Surely it's, those, those lists really are just methods. Yeah, it's a structure in which to hang your adventures. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a clothes, it's a, it's a, you know, one of the, what do you call those things that you hang your clothes on with the, you know, those little hooks that you hang your clothes as you come in? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the coat it's rail. it's yeah. a coat, right? I don't know. It's yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. One of no, those. I, I buy that. So how, I'm interested in the transition. We're jumping all over the place, but that's how the philosophical ones tend to go. But when you decided to leave architecture, what made you jump and what was it like to go from that safe structure to becoming a guide? Um, God, uh, that's a, I, I've no idea really. Um, I had, uh, I'd come to a point at which I'd paid off my mortgage. And so I didn't have to be an architect any longer because being a guide is, you know, if it was all about money, I, I would still be an architect. <laughs> I mean, I certainly not be a guide anymore. You, you don't do that for money. And um, uh, as an architect, I, um, I was surrounded by four walls, spending most of my day. Uh, in those days, we didn't, in, in, in the uh, 70s and 80s, I changed in the mid-90s, um, we didn't have... Um, um, we weren't working on Macintoshes. We weren't working on laptops. I mean, we weren't working on screens. So we were still on drawing boards and hunched over and these kind of long lines being drawn. And the, um, you know, the, the set square and the T-square. It's, it's just, you know, the, the tram lines of being the rectangle. You know, architecture is a dreadful thing. And, um, you know, I'd be looking out the window and, you know, every... just aching to go out to, you know, go climbing in the evenings and the summer or, you know, planning my expeditions and looking out the window. And uh, now I'm kind of outside the building in the countryside, looking in the window, looking at, through there and thinking, thank God I'm not in there over point over that. Drawing. I mean, I, you know, is there really a, is there really such a surprising choice? <laughs> well, maybe not for you because you did it. But I think I think the vast majority of people never make that leap. Yeah, but perhaps the vast majority of people didn't have a have a sort of another passion, and I mean I don't mean that it was climbing. It could have been anything. You know, I, I could have been into sailing or or, or, or running or biking and and, and um, hill walking. Or I mean, my other my other great passion um, at, when I was young. Um, was playing chess. Uh, there's something else I'm really bad at. I, there's two things I'm really bad at that I love. I love rock climbing. I'm just, I'm just you know, I'm never going to be a great rock climber. It doesn't matter, you know. Uh, you can love music and not be a concert pianist. You don't, you don't, you know, if the concert pianists would have nobody to play to if you could only appreciate music by being a concert pianist. They, you know, so the great majority, of, so I'm, you know, I'm, that's and the other thing that you know is chess. I, I, I when I was at school, I you know played chess at schoolboy level, and, and and I love chess. I had to stop playing chess uh, in a chess club because I'm really bad at it. <laughs> I mean, no, I was never going to be an international master, and I kept getting beaten by. Um, yeah, it's, 
<laughs> it's I'm just useless at it, but I love it. I think I just it's a great it's a great thing to pass your time. Um, I couldn't have given up architecture or chess. First of all, there's absolutely no money. I couldn't have made a living at it, and I'm just not good enough. Whereas climbing, I was kind of you know okay when it crampons and ice axes are a great leveler, so you you can get a reasonable level, um, you know, in the mountains which kind of hides and disguises how bad you are on the walk. <laughs> and when they discover how bad you are in the in Scotland, you have to go and hide in the Alps. And when they find out how bad you are in the Alps, you have to run off to the Himalayas where nobody can see you climbing. <laughs> well, it's a different game, isn't it? The difference between athleticism and yeah. maybe problem solving. Yeah, may, maybe the, the, the Himalayan thing um, came to me because of the connection with architecture, with the combination of execution and planning. Well, you said it earlier, uh, you know, you said architecture is elegant problem solving. Mm. I would argue that what you've been doing in the mountains is elegant problem solving. Yeah, we're trying to, yeah. yeah. I, I, it, there is that, there's an, it's analogous in that way, yeah. Mm. And with chess probably too. Let's, let's, <laughs> chess is all about problem solving, but it's all, it's mental athletics. It's mental yeah. yoga. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. So <laughs> did you used to be this, easygoing and content have you always been this um god knows i i think i think that when we were young um we were just arrogant little squirts all of us we all we all kind of thought that um that on the one hand we didn't really know how good or how bad we were we didn't really know that but we did know that there were things that, that there was a level of technical competence that allowed us to do something. We didn't, we didn't think ourselves, you know, I was climbing with Mick and these people. We didn't think of ourselves as being particularly good, but we did know that there was a kind of minimum level of competence to be involved in that. And I guess I'm, I, I, I would hate to meet myself again uh, as of, you know, 40 years ago, because I suspect that we'd have been um, the kind of arrogant little squirts that really didn't talk to people who weren't climbing the same sort of things that we were climbing. I suspect. I don't know. Yeah, and so without getting too political, when you look at the state of mountaineering now and climbing, whether or not, I don't know if you do keep up with it, but do you look at youngsters and think the same thing? No, I think people are, uh, youngsters are much nicer nowadays than they were 40 years ago. <laughs> Mostly. And the ones who are not, I just think, well, go, you know, I recognise that. You're just like we used to be. <laughs> I hope you become a nicer person. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the goal, isn't it? So sort of drawing to a close, I guess, I, as I'm going to say this broadly and interpret it as you, as you wish, but how do you feel about the state of mountaineering? Well, it's, uh, it's a long question. Um, I mean, uh, if... the the things that um, that we were doing in you know in the eighties um, were quite good um, in the Himalayas and and not just just us but you know I mean I was climbing with Sustad uh, with Venables Fowler and a lot of the climbs that we were doing then would still make the Pierre Door Awards now and if you look at sort of Kurtiker and Showers, you know, ascent uh, 1970, uh, 1980, I can't remember the year, uh, 84, 86, 85, of, um, of the west face of Gashabram 4. If they did that now, it would be a PLA door winner. Uh, so, in a sense, that kind of alpinism hasn't, the, the, the standard hasn't changed. If you say what, what, um, what Jerry Muffet was doing, you know, or I don't know who, no, it was, it was Fawcett, you're yeah, talking about Fawcett's time, you know, take his hardest routes and compare it to now, it's a world apart. And yet, um, a high altitude Himalayan mountaineering is, has not progressed, you know, that much. I mean, yes, there are the Steve Houses and so on who've got these big training programs, but really, um, the, 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 the world of, of high altitude Himalayan alpine style climbing is very, very similar to what it was 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And is there progress to be had? Oh, yeah, I think so. But it's a, probably the progress is, 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 you know, yeah, the crampons are a bit better, but not really, a bit lighter. Ice axes, 
they change the form every year, but actually it's still, you know, ever since uh, Simone produced the Chacals and Barracudas uh, with the reverse picks, uh, things haven't changed. Some of the shafts are a bit more bendy, but you, you, the old things are almost as good as the new things. Um, there's a few other things that have changed. So people don't use leashes anymore. They use um, um, handles and leashless climbing, but actually... It's almost a fashion, it's, you know, there's nothing much in it. Ice screws are much better now. Um, they're, they're very light and they're very, you know, they place them by hand. But that, that was an invention of the Russians in the, in the 80s. They already had titanium ice screws, which are easy to sharpen, easy to blunt and therefore easy to sharpen. So you, you can ease, you know, just a few strokes. Um, but um, I think overall, if, if if you look at 30, we've just, Catherine Destival's just produced this wonderful book, um, 30 Years of the PLA Door Awards, which Lindsay Griffin and I helped look for some photographs on. Uh, so we had a sort of peripheral um, contribution to it. And looking at 30 Years of PLA Door, door it's, it is remarkable that actually, you know, these are great, fantastic, fantastic climbs and they're really inspirational. But actually it's it, the... It's the same thing, you know. It's it's not the difference between 8A and 9A. No, that's very interesting. It just makes me think about why that might be, and I wonder if half of it's the danger, just to... Uh, I don't, uh, yeah, it's, well, it's a, long, it's a long question. It's probably... Uh, I don't know the answer to it, but I do know that the discussion would go on for at least an hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's... Um... I mean, you look at, for instance, what, you know, Tom Livingston did on that hook, and he was... The, the route they did was not as hard um, as um, as 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 uh, Jeff Lowe's route would have been, and it was thirty years later. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's it, it's it's. I think it's a you know it's a remarkable observation that maybe that's a discussion for another day with a group of venerable mountaineers. <laughs> well, or young ones. Well, yeah, well, yeah, drag them in too. But yeah, that's a good point. I mean, they, they're doing things differently. You know, we, 30 years ago, we, gen, people were, this is the British anyway, were generally climbing in small teams, two or four. Uh, I mean, obviously the south face of Shisha Pengmar in uh, 82 was different. There was three of them on that. But they were climbing in an alpine style, all three of them. Um, and they were just, they were climbing, carrying their own rucksacks and all that. Whereas nowadays, when you have a group of three, um, especially for you know, Eastern Europeans, you'll have what? This is fantastic route. It's just been done on Annapurna 3 by three Ukrainians. And they had one leader climbing almost with nothing, and the other two being mules carrying, you know. So it's a very different, tactically very different. And that's how they've got some things going. When, um, when Marco Pretzel and Manu Guy, and um, um, when the two Manus repeated, uh, the route that Mick and I did on Spantic, they climbed as a three and had one leader climbing with a very, very light rucksack and the two coming with very different, with a heavier rucksacks. And I guess that was, you know, that was, that was 17 years after us. Anyway, so it's, it's, it's tactically different. But different ways of playing the same game. Um, very slightly different rules, yeah. yeah. I mean, Doug, Doug, Doug wrote that um, uh, in the Shisha Pengma book, which I've I, I know this because I've just you know, reread it again recently, he, he said that on, in 1982 they acclimatized on neighboring peaks, not on the route they wanted to do on Shisha Pengma, so that they were doing an on site, a ground up on site alpine style. Now, that, that is, you know, that's setting, that's very principled, that's setting the rules of the game very strictly. It's very principled and pure way of looking at it yeah and it feels so unimportant to those who don't not no don't understand it because that sounds elitist but i mean why does it matter why does any game matter <laughs> you know it matters you know that's the we go back to wittgenstein you know it's it's the game is you know the only important thing the only important thing is that you have these rules of the game there are two rules that are not written you know Unwritten rules. One, you absolutely declare what your rules are. 
and two, you don't lie and you don't pretend that you've used a higher set of rules or a different set of rules. So you don't lie and you declare what you've done. And then, as far as I'm concerned, providing the game you're playing doesn't impinge negatively on other people, who cares? Who cares? Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, okay. I have two final questions for you, which I always ask everybody. Interpret them as you see fit. What scares you? <laughs> Interviews. <laughs> You're the first person to ever say that. <laughs> well, you're very well. Terrifying. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. I think the most terrifying interview I, or the talk that I've ever had to give was I'd been told I was going to talk to these, this, uh, a class of 12-year-olds in, um, in, in Oxford. In, I think it's called the Dragon School. One of the, I can't remember one of the schools. And um, so I, I, had, I had prepared a talk uh, for a group of maybe 8 to 12 kids. And I opened the door, and the whole fucking school's there. 300 kids. <laughs> and there's, there's, this comic, there's this scene out of like a comic book where I've got my feet on the ground trying to be... And the teachers are pushing me onto stage. <laughs> and I, it was, was, was heart-stoppingly terrifying. <laughs> there you go. Oh, brilliant. Um, what brings you hope? Gosh, uh, life, I think. I, I don't know. I, 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 have, I don't have an answer to that because I haven't thought about it. Um, uh, every, everything brings me hope. I think uh, seeing my son produce a film yeah, has given me great hope. That's fantastic. Um, it's a very poor teacher or poor parent that doesn't want their children to do better than them. That's a lovely That's a great answer. <laughs> oh, very poignant. I think that, that was wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For more information, check us out on Instagram at The Adventure Podcast. The podcast is a Cold House production and is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Ola Omari and Alex Hall. If you'd like to get in touch with a guest suggestion or to give us some feedback, then you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.